This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I have the honor of speaking with a jack of all trades. He is a singer, a dancer, an actor, and a voiceover artist. He has a long list of Broadway credits that include In the Heights, Man of La Mancha, and The Goodbye Girl. He is currently touring as King George III in the musical Hamilton. And he tells us about the theatrical responsibilities of being an understudy, what it was like to star opposite Lin-Manuel Miranda in Puerto Rico where he grew up, and he encourages us all to say yes more often to make life more interesting. Coming up is my conversation with the first Puerto Rican king, Rick Negron. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Hello, Rick. Hey, Pat. Good to see you and actually hear you. <laughs> yeah, this is really great. It, I, I'm enjoying the idea of having our conversation today because I've always been enamored by Broadway and you've got eight Broadway shows at least under your belt. Something like that. I lost count. No, I didn't. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. It's really an exciting thing in the theater world. And I guess the first question that I have for you is just about the necessity of theater. Ooh. Wow. I know it's a big question, but you live and breathe it. So, And you know what? My, my answer is colored by the years I've spent in it. My mom was a drama teacher. So I did my first professional theater job when I was 10 years old. Cut to, uh, what the hell? I'm not afraid of my age. 50 years later, and I'm still doing it. It's funny, though, because it was my life when I lived in New York. And then I, at one point, thought, oh, my God, all these... TV guys are getting lead roles on Broadway. This was back in the in the 80s. I just thought, well, I'll go to L.A. You know, I've always wanted to do TV and film, get a name for myself, and then come back to New York with a name and get the lead role. Because for a long time, I was in the chorus of Broadway shows, and I was always the understudy. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride, as many of us understudies used to call ourselves back in the day. Can I interrupt you for just a second, though? Sure. Do me a favor, for those that aren't, familiar with the understudy life, ah, but people don't know what's happening or how much you have to know. So give us a little sense of that understudy world. Well, in theater, especially on Broadway, you're doing eight shows a week for weeks, months, hopefully if you're in a hit show, years. And so literally at any time, any member of the company can fall sick, can injure themselves for whatever reason, or at some point want to take a vacation. So every member of the company has somebody that knows their role, that can plug into their role, whether it's a dancer, a singer, a lead, somebody in the chorus, or some one of the principals. And in many shows, you have multiple people covering each role so that you're never in, in the situation where two people are sick and suddenly you're, you're short a guy or a gal. And also, you move somebody to a principal role, then their spot is empty. Somebody's got to be there, right? Exactly. I mean, it is a bit of a shell game, moving people around. But, you know, mostly for the chorus members of, let's say, of a, of a Broadway musical, we have what we call swings. And swings are another member of the chorus who's not on stage every night, but they understudy anywhere from four to ten people. So they know four to ten different tracks all the staging, all the choreography, even in some cases, especially for Hamilton, 
all the different vocal tracks. Because if you go on for that person, you have to sing soprano. But if you go on for that person, you have to sing alto. It gets really complicated. So swings are a crucial part of any Broadway show. And then usually what they do is that they will understudy the principles with members of the chorus. And in some cases, like Hamilton, that has a lot of principles, they'll actually have standbys, particular actors that will understudy just, let's say, three or four different principles. And they know all this material, like they've got all this blocking, all the dancing, and they may not go on for months at a time. Yeah, it's a huge amount of learning. And then luckily, especially on Broadway, they every week have understudy rehearsal usually on Thursdays. Our union allows stage managers to have, I think, five hours of rehearsal a week. And the understudies rehearse every week, but they only rehearse amongst themselves. They don't have everybody there. So they're still every week going over the material, but it's a whole nother ball of wax when you get thrown in with costumes and lights and the orchestra and the rest of the cast. It's It can be nerve-wracking. Yeah, not to mention that in a show like Hamilton, they're also moving the scenery at times, right? They're pushing tables and chairs and whatever it is, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. So there's, oh, yeah. That's a, an awful lot of responsibility that I think most ticket buyers, here's their relationship with an understudy. A piece of paper falls out of the program and they go, oh, I didn't get the main guy. Yeah. I've had an experience many times where I didn't know really who I was seeing and that paper fell out. And then I was like, what? This guy's unbelievable, right? Like this yeah. person is blowing my mind. They should just stay in the show, right? That's, of course, the fantasy, the highest, you know. That's Shirley MacLaine's story. She was an understudy and she went on and she got seen. And the next thing you know, it's <laughs> she's Shirley MacLaine. Anybody who has the utility kit to be a really solid understudy is ready. They're ready all the time, right? So yeah. then it's unfortunate that they get known for being so good at that, that the break doesn't always happen. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. I was a swing on two Broadway shows. My second Broadway show was The Mystery of Edwin Drood. I was an understudy, a swing on that, and I understudied the lead. And then I also was a swing on Man of La Mancha with Raul Julia. And in both cases... It was at times, I remember Men La Mancha, I was maybe five days into rehearsals and one guy got sick and they threw me on and I barely knew the role. And literally I was being pushed around on stage. And luckily in that show we're prisoners and we're, we've got all kinds of rags and whatnot. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of freedom <laughs> there. But literally I had no idea most of the time what I was doing. I was getting pushed around. And, you know, luckily I knew the dance numbers and, and most of the singing, you know, everybody knows the music in that show. Thank God I was familiar with it. But yeah, there's some scary moments. We call those Sybil moments when you're on stage and suddenly you're doing one role and you realize, oh my God, I don't know what this person does next. And it happens all the time. And your fellow actors are pushing you or saying a word in your ear. Directing you with their eyeballs. They're like, go over there, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I remember famously I did uh, Man La Mancha with Robert Goulet and he would forget lines. And luckily Sancho Panza knew all his lines and Sancho <laughs> would whisper in his ear, this is your line. Of course, he was playing a madman. So it was perfect casting in that case. It's funny. There was a role I played once in Omaha. It was A Few Good Men. And I was playing the JAG lawyer that was Tom Cruise played in the movie. And oh, I love that. I, I'm not really a studied actor. That was like a big, big role for me. And the director gave me a piece of advice because I really wasn't an actor. He said, you don't have to be an actor. You have to be a lawyer. 
you have to present this case because it was primarily a law case and the audience is your jury and you have to convince them. And so I learned it and I learned a lot doing it, but I did have an older actor on the stand, went up on his lines and <laughs> it was like a critical part of the show. So I just pretended to be a lawyer and I said, didn't you say in your testimony? And I just said his line. <laughs> That it was lactic acidosis and whatever. He goes, yeah, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. That, that's what it was, right? <laughs> the light suddenly goes on. <laughs> he was saying thank you with his eyelids, like, okay. Oh, Pat, I have a great story. I was on Broadway doing In the Heights, which was my first big role on Broadway. After being a, a chorus boy for many years, I went back to New York to do In the Heights. And then the Heights is also a Lin-Manuel Miranda show, for those that don't know. His first show, right. And actually, it was the little show that could. It had it was produced by the guys that did Rent and Avenue Q. It won the Tony Award for Best Musical. It was sort of an underdog. But that's really what catapulted Lin's career, and then Hamilton just changed everything. But I was on stage playing the father, and I had a scene with Chris Jackson, who was uh, the original George Washington in Hamilton. He was playing Benny. And he forgot to, to do an entrance with a very short scene with the father. So I come on stage and there's no Chris Jackson. And I'm looking around and there's still no Chris Jackson. And there's a bit of information that needs to come out to further the story in the scene. So luckily a light bulb went on in my head. There was the little taxi stand, which I, the father is the owner of the taxi stand right there. I remember there's a phone there. So I walked into the taxi stand. <laughs> I picked up the cell phone, had the whole conversation on the cell phone, looked over at the conductor who, who was wide-eyed going, oh my God. As I was finishing all the information that needed to be said, he went on with the next cue and went into the next scene. Poor Chris, he, he was in a place in the theater where he couldn't hear the monitors and he missed the scene and, and he was just incredibly embarrassed. I've missed cues, by the way. So that no, nobody's immune to that one. <laughs> no, we have. And I have to say another funny thing in the theater, and it's kind of not in the fully professional theater, but at times people mess with each other, you know? <laughs> I mean, I've opened closets and doors where, you know, I'm supposed to go get something and there's a person in there with a cake or something and the audience can't see them, but I can. And I'm like, what is happening? Pat, can we curse on your show? Yes, you can speak freely. When I did Man La Mancha the first time, they, they had hired many of the original muleteers, guys in their 70s who had done the original show in New York. And one of the guys early on, he was teaching me the show and he says, remember, Rick, it's never too early to start fucking around <laughs> on stage, basically. And I just thought, whoa, here's a, a professional I was revering. And this is one of the first things out of his mouth. Right. <laughs> now, I remember this is a, a crazy show in high school that I did. And I was playing some drunk or something. And I was coughing and I had TB or something. Well, anyway, I coughed so much that... I barfed on the pillowcase of the bed and it went dark. So I just flipped the pillow over and left in the dark. <laughs> the funny thing was, is that they just, somebody comes and moves the bed to the other side of the room for a different scene with a dad that's a drunk or something. Anyway, this guy falls into that bed and his hand goes under that pillowcase and he was like, what in the world? <laughs> 
So, I mean, it wasn't intentional, but it was one of those things where there was no way to communicate. You're going to be in a world of hurt, pal, when you hit that bed. <laughs> and it brings me back to the beauty of theater. And really, to finish off your question about why theater, I mean, I came out to L.A. to, to try to do TV and film, and I did some stuff. But what I realized was that waking up at 5 in the morning and sitting in a trailer for four hours, going over your lines, and then finally having the opportunity to go on set. And if you're not like a big wig in the show, you maybe get to rehearse it a couple of times, you shoot it, you're done. And then they're like, bye, here, sign some papers. You'll get paid. But it was so, I don't know, I just didn't find it artistically interesting at all. And then I realized after years of, of doing that kind of work, I thought, oh my God, I crave theater. I crave the process where the actor and, and the writing are the most important thing, not the lighting and the set. So I realized that theater really is my lifeblood. And sure, I'll do TV, I'll do film. That's great. It sure helps pay the bills. But theater is really what keeps my motor running. Yeah. And you mentioned the process, which is fascinating. Most people, they buy a ticket, they see the final result. So let's talk about a show like Hamilton, which you starred in in Puerto Rico in the run with Lin-Manuel Miranda, and then were in a run in San Francisco up until the world came to a pause right now, a pandemic pause. We were the first show to close down because we were in San Francisco, and San Francisco was one of the first cities to close down. So we yeah. literally did a matinee on March 11th, and then the, the city came down with a ruling saying n nothing over, I think it was 500 people, and we were, we were closed. Boom. Just, uh, March 11th. Yeah, and that must have been a heartbreaker. Those who don't know, you played the role of King George III, which is like one of the great comic turns in all musical theater. Great songs, great costume, just great attitude. I'm intrigued by all of that and how you came to the role. I know that you had been in uh, in the Heights and you had a relationship, I suspect, being from Puerto Rico with Lin-Manuel Miranda, but did you have to audition with uh, gaggles of other folks or what? It's funny how auditioning has changed over the years and even before the pandemic. A lot of auditions were tape yourself at home or record yourself at home if you're doing a song, whatever. And so I knew the gang and I did show interest. And, and once Hamilton became such a hit and I said, really, the only role I'm right for is the king because I'm older and all the other roles, except for the king and George Washington, they really they skew young actor on everything else. And from, from my money, the king was really the role I wanted. And uh, it just worked out. I did audition a lot. The creative team, uh, Hamilton, my friends are very, very particular and they're very, very thorough. And they want to get the best people who are prepared to perform. So when you see a company of Hamilton, on average, most of the people on stage have auditioned half a dozen times, if not a dozen times. They have work sessions where you learn the music and they give you notes. And I mean, it's an audition process like no other, but for good reason. It's a really tough show. Even the role of the king, which seems easy. Huh? You do three songs, you're maybe on stage 10 minutes. It's a tricky one. It's hard to sing. It's a, it's a role that you could easily make just a buffoonish clown and so kitschy. And to really make him interesting, you really got to dig deep. It's tricky. The audition process was lengthy. And here's a guy who was already in with the crew. <laughs> but I'm actually, it was all kismet because at the end of the day, I didn't get into one of the other uh, tours that they were casting. I got into the right tour, which is the one that went to Puerto Rico, to my hometown, with Lynn, you know, it was just a dream come true for me. 
I thought that was one of the brightest moments in leadership when he decided to bring the show to Puerto Rico and mm. return to the role. Puerto Rico had been hit so hard by the hurricanes and and what to bring some tourism back, to bring some hope back. It was just a moment of that announcement. I thought, wow, this is really something. This is when theater has an impact socially. It has a, a global impact yeah. on the attention being brought to Puerto Rico. So uh, my understanding is that you were performing in a theater just blocks away from a hospital you were born in. Yeah, four blocks away from Doctor's Hospital where I was born, yeah. And what's funny is I had performed in that theater with Lynn in the national tour of In the Heights. I did a switch with the guy that was on the national tour. I wanted to perform in Puerto Rico, my hometown, and my parents were elderly. They couldn't come to New York. And so we did a switch. The guy on the tour came to Broadway, and I went and joined the national tour and did Puerto Rico with Lynn and was it 2010, I believe, to then nine years later, go back to the same theater with Lynn in Hamilton. Wow. And I mean, I grew up just six blocks away. My grandfather had built an apartment building and I walked from the theater down to the street where I played as a kid. And there was the building my grandfather built. It was just crazy. I love that. So when you were young, when did you leave Puerto Rico? At what age? As you can tell, the fact that I don't have much of an accent. And if you look at me, I kind of look you know, not very Hispanic. My mom's a nice Irish girl from Ohio. And she ended up in Puerto Rico and ended up marrying a Puerto Rican man who, my dad, a doctor, they started their family down there. And she had this bug from when she was a kid for music and, and theater. She taught school in Puerto Rico at an army base and she was the drama teacher. I blame Alice. She's the one <laughs> that got the bug in me. And I started at an early age doing <laughs> school plays. And the next thing you know, I somehow got myself into some semi-professional play in town and kept doing all kinds of stuff as I was in high school in theater. My mom influenced me too, but when she said, go to your room until you learn how to act, I misunderstood what she meant by that. <laughs> but I'm bumps. <laughs> actually, she actually, one of the funny things was I did magic tricks when I was younger. Oh, you, you were one of those kids, huh? <laughs> Because my name was Patrick, she pitched the she pitched to me that my magic name be P A Trick. Uh, I was like, Mom, you have no idea how bad that sounds, you know. <laughs> but all right, so let's talk about this. You were dancing also young, yeah. Because I know you did a lot of dancing. You danced in the film Chicago, right? Yeah, I did a lot of children's theater when I was in Puerto Rico, and I did one play where they it had a choreographer. I remember it was a, it was a children's theater production of Pinocchio. And there was a choreographer there and everybody in the show was, she had a little dance school, American lady had a dance school down there and everybody started taking her jazz class. And I must've been about 13. And I was like, yeah, I'll take the jazz class with my sisters, you know, and I put on my judo pants. I was taking <laughs> jazz class in my sneakers and I had an affinity to it. And the teacher saw that I had some talent and she gave me a full scholarship. Next thing you know, every day after school, I was going there and taking ballet, jazz and tap and acrobatics. And I started early. By the time I was 16, I was dancing in TV shows in Puerto Rico, backup dancing for singers. And, and then I ended up going to Sarah Lawrence College. I went there because they had a really great dance department, a great drama department, and a great music department. So instead of going to a musical theater conservatory, I took modern dance and I took straight theater and I trained in opera. So it was a really great education. So you would probably say that music had a big impact on your overall career. 
Oh, without a doubt. My mom played the, the organ in church, and we would sing in the car four-part harmony because luckily I have four siblings, and they all sing. Uh, yeah, we're, we're a little bit of the, the Puerto Rican Von Trapp family a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my other sister also got the theater bug. She went to Northwestern and got a, a degree in theater, and then she went and got her master's in directing at Brooklyn College. So there's two of us. In- where in your life, whether it's theater or elsewhere, do you feel that your creative compass is pointed to true north? Wow, great question. I think, you know, I really found it with this role in Hamilton. And, and I've been finding this over the years, but I find, and especially with Hamilton and in the Heights, the responsibility we have as actors, as healers, as change makers, as a way of, of changing the narrative and the way people think about things. You know, I, I really found my artistic compass with these shows and realized that I'm changing lives. I, I, I come outside and, and sign autographs, and there's little kids who are just so incredibly engaged in a show like Hamilton who know what the Federalist Papers are. I didn't know what the Federalist Papers were until I was <laughs> in my 30s. And these are 8- and 10-year-olds who know what the Federalist Papers are about, who our founding fathers are, you know, what legacy is. They know what legacy is at the age of 10. I mean, what an incredible thing. I remember we were in Puerto Rico, and one of our final performances, uh, we had the Clintons came to see the show. And I went up to Bill, and I said, you know, I was a caterer in L.A. for many years, and I served you dinner many times as a caterer. (laughs) He goes, no way. And we had a little bit of a moment. And he says, I want to tell you that the beauty of the show is not so much that it's entertaining, but that it's teaching an entire generation about civics and involvement in our government and in our politics. Yeah, no doubt. The fact that Alexander Hamilton is, they know the words, okay? So they're singing in, in repetition, right. they're taking it in. But finding out historically how much he was involved in, in our the development of our country and various parts of our government, it's really an extraordinary piece of work anyway in how it's cast and how it's staged. And there's so much urgency and energy that it changes up from hip-hop to rhythm and blues kind of options in there, right? Yeah. My song is a British pop song. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm fascinated by that, too, because you're really independent of most of the company. You're doing scenes alone. Like, the experience for you must be quite a bit different because you're probably sitting downstairs as the cast is doing the whole shebang, and then you got to come out and hold that same energy by yourself, and then you go back downstairs or whatever, however that plays out. It's a very isolating role. I mean, and it even starts out in rehearsals. You show up at rehearsals, and right away, the stage management is like, well, you don't need to be here a whole heck of a lot. You know, we'll call you in for vocal rehearsals with this musical director. And, you know, whenever we're working on a scene that you're in, which is not often, we'll call you in. But I decided I wanted to be there for every day of rehearsal, not only to kind of bond with the cast, but I also had my eyes set on possibly in the future directing or or setting a company of Hamilton. You know, I was already talking to the creative team saying, you know, in the future, I, I could be a resident director. I could oversee one of your companies. I've always had that interest. And so I was there really watching because being a dancer, I really could pick up the choreography. I could pick up the staging. Um, and, I, and I wanted to hear all the little nuggets that our resident director and Tommy Kale, the, the director, and Alex Lackamore, the musical director, all the little nuggets that they would come in and give the cast. I was there to hear all of it. And, and I'm glad I did it. 
Well, I think you're giving a great piece of advice to anybody interested in this, which is auditing that you don't get to watch a director work if you're just a kid walking down the street. So whenever you have an opportunity, when you see a producer, when you see a director, when you overhear the lingo, when you see the, the dynamic of how they give a note to someone. I mean, you've done a lot of directing as well. So that's informed by every director that gave you a piece of advice, isn't it? Absolutely. Being a fly on the wall is invaluable as an actor. And in, in every case, you know, even just watching people on the subway, just people watching is part of what we do for research. I've luckily been able to watch some amazing directors work. One of my favorite stories is early on, I did a production of West Side Story. And at that point, Jerome Robbins would have his assistants set the show. And then he would come in the week before opening and he would tweak it. And he was very, very quiet and very reserved man and very serious. But one thing I loved was that he would come in, he said, okay, do the opening number. We did the opening number. And he would go and, and give everybody notes. Okay, you're doing this. You should do this here. He would give everybody notes and he goes, okay, show me the next number. And as a performer, you're used to the director or the choreographer saying, okay, let's do the number again to see if you took the note. Not Jerome Robbins. He, a part of him was like, I'm going to be efficient. We're not going to go back and do it again. I gave you the note. You're a professional. I believe you will take that note and you will implement it. I don't need to see it. Wow. And it's also empowering. Like, you're a professional. I know you're going to take that note and you're going to do the right thing. I don't need to see it. Moving on. Let's go. And that was amazing. Amazing to watch. You know, it is interesting what theater has over television and film is that it does become the responsibility of the performer to execute the emotional arc of the... Once that stage coach gets into a runaway, the director can't step in, nobody can do anything. It takes a lot of stamina to be an actor. A, a television actor, as you said, the amount of time you spend in a honey wagon or a trailer or some kind of thing where you're checking your text and sleeping on the couch... Like, at any second, they bang on the door and it's go time. There's no run through. Unless you're number one on the on the cast list. If you're the star of the show, and you know, I have a few friends who have been the big star of a show, they're there five, six days a week and they're they're working crazy hours. But that's not the majority of actors' reality. And you know, I, I was gonna mention one quick point. Uh, about the difference between theater and film. I, I always would walk away from a, a TV or film job and go, oh God, I should have done this. I should have done that. Oh my God, that's going to be out there for perpetuity. Oh gosh, so much. And me being a little bit OCD and very much a perfectionist, I love theater because if I screw up tonight, I can redeem myself tomorrow. <laughs> and, it, and, and I'm one of those guys that I just... People say, don't you get tired? You've been doing the same thing eight shows a week for a year. And I'm like, no, I get to reinvent the wheel every night. I get to reinvent this guy. I get, I get to play with him. I get to, to make him better. I get better as time goes on. A year in, I'm better than I was a year ago. As I'm thinking about King George and his, one of his great songs is You'll Be Back. Mm -hmm. I might need a few bars of it in case we go to a commercial. <laughs> then that's the throw, right? <laughs> Yes, yes. I didn't bring my speaker with me, so I I, I don't know if uh, you want you want it Acapulco, as they say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's do it Acapulco. <laughs> okay, here we go. A little bit of you'll be back for Pat and the rest of the gang out there. 
you say the price of my love's not a price that you're willing to pay you cry in your tea which you hurl in the sea when you see me go by why so sad remember we made an arrangement when you went away now you're making me mad remember despite our estrangement i'm your man and that's without warming up (laughs) that's great you know what they can't see that i can is your eyebrow work And and actually, it's gotten bigger over the pandemic uh, because <laughs> Zoom is just not a great audience. The trick of that role, and it's a wonderful note that I got from the director, was the less you do, the better it is. This is a guy who can move his finger and kill entire populations. So he doesn't have to do much. You know, he's a king. He's, he was groomed as a child to be king. Right. At the blink of an eye, he can change a country's population. Yeah. Some actors play him a little bit nutty from the beginning. I did some research on King George, and he really didn't start exhibiting his madness until after he lost the colonies, a little bit later in life. He was in full capacity during the Revolutionary War and very, very involved in the war. He was one of those kings that was like, how many blankets are going out and how many ships? And he was really involved where, you know, a lot of monarchs are chasing mistresses and stuff, not as involved. The way monarchs do. Right. Famously, up until George, they were, you know, a lot of Lotharios. And then King George III was the one monarch who came, who married, had 15 kids, didn't have mistresses, was frugal. They were famous for, like, eating leftovers and not throwing big parties. And he was very involved in government and studied math and science and started the King's Library. And he was known as Farmer King George because he was very involved in agriculture. I mean, this guy was awesome. And actually, the love affair between the royals and the British people started with King George because he was so awesome and he was so involved. But when he started going crazy, they felt bad for him. And especially later on in life. He was endearing himself to them prior to the madness. Yes. And the madness actually endeared him even more because they thought, oh, poor guy. He was so great. And now, you know, oh, they felt bad for him. They really Mm -hmm. did. And, you know, at some point he lived to a ripe old age, but he was quite mad at the end. The prince regent really was governing after a while. And how does it feel to don a powdered wig every night? (laughs) Well, luckily it's not powdered. But uh, interesting fun fact, they don't make it out of human hair because human hair that's gray is unruly and hard to manage, as most people with gray hair know. It's mostly made out of yak hair, horse hair, and some human hair (laughs) because it it, it can then be curled. And Ah. it's a fairly easy wig to put on. But boy, once you put that wig on... (laughs) And I put my wig on at places because I have a good 10, 15 minutes before I go on stage. But once you put that wig on, I'm in little pump heels and you have a completely silk red suit. And then you go on stage and they put on the crown, which everybody, oh, how heavy is the crown? The original crown was about five, almost six pounds. But they they were able to trim down the weight by the time I came around and, and they built my crown. My crown is really only about three and a half pounds. It's kind of unwieldy. you got to keep your head up. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that it makes you walk a certain way. And the way you walk with that crown is perfect for the king. As you watch Jonathan Groff in, in the Disney Plus, the original cast version, he walks very gingerly and he, <laughs> he's got a very specific walk. It's all a product of keeping the crown upright. Dude, You let your head go sideways and you're tilting like the Titanic for sure. (laughs) Weevils wobble, but they don't (laughs) don't fall down. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, the other thing I noticed from that Disney Plus performance is he's spitting. <laughs> he's just letting the spit fly. I mean, it's great. The commitment to the song is everything. Exactly. You think about being in live theater in row one or two and and catching some spittle. It's quite a bit different than being ringside at a fight. Oh, the conductor and the, and the musicians are getting the, the heft of it. <laughs> Because they're in the pit right in front of him. But you're right, especially at the Richard Rogers, which is a small theater. I'm sure he might have been reaching the first row. But I just love the wild abandonment. He doesn't care. He is so committed in the moment. He's so good. And the truth is, people ask me, I mean, is this a rarity? I said, no, I'm a big spitter myself. And especially in that role, you are doing the British accent. And it's all about the consonants. And it's all about very, yeah. And there's so much work being done with the mouth at the time that you're singing that your mouth starts salivating and you can't help it. And then you get, and no, don't change the subject. And of course you start spitting. Yeah. A word like subject is going to come. Oh yeah. And I mean, I spit, but I, I'm not in Jonathan's league at all. <laughs> you know, they might need to start passing out ponchos like it's a Gallagher concert. <laughs> right? or, or the, or the Shamu show, you know, <laughs> you will get wet in this row. Now, I'm going to change the subject because I do remember you telling me somewhere along the way that you danced in Michael Jackson's bad video. Yes. Lin-Manuel Miranda loves to tell everybody, because I don't go around telling people this. No, no, I know. But it's such a iconic moment. Yeah. Because... Didn't it first appear on MTV or something? Yeah. Or, so it was a long video. Yeah. It was one of those, what they call mini movie videos that they, they were making around that time. And this one had like a whole storyline, a whole acting, maybe half hour prior to the actual dance video. The bad video starred uh, Wesley Snipes before he became a big star. That was one of his first big breaks. And that video was directed by Martin Scorsese. I mean, it was a huge deal. And it was the first music video that was uh, done under a SAG contract, the Screen Actors Guild. It was a union contract, the first ever. And we set a precedent with that video because unfortunately, the producers wanted to pay us extra rate, which was mm. not a lot of money. And right. all the dancers were like, wait a minute, we're in a subway station in Brooklyn dancing on cement. And every time we go home at night, we blow our noses and black soot is coming out of our noses. And we're pretty prominent with Michael in this video. I don't think we should be getting extra rate. We should be getting a, a SAG day player rate. And so we actually fought for it and we got it. And it set a precedent for a lot of music videos after that. Funnily enough, it was supposed to be a one-week shoot, but because both Michael and Scorsese are well-known for being incredible perfectionists. I think it went into four weeks. Wow. They shot so much film. I mean, it was not uncommon to do 25 takes in, in each setup. Not uncommon at all. That must have been pretty grueling physically. Yeah. You know, Michael was there at the forefront doing every take and turning around and saying, come on, guys, let's go. Let's do it again. I mean, he it was so it was such a dichotomy because when you met him, he was so shy and reserved, almost painfully shy. Right. And immediately I realized this is a guy who everybody wants a piece of him. And he's just trying to protect himself in many ways. And I kind of felt sorry for him. And I remember Scorsese was directing and De Niro showed up on set and he brought his kids because he was just visiting. And the minute kids showed up on the set, he just became another person. It was amazing. It was a, a complete flip. And I realized, oh, kids don't pose a threat. No. And also, you know, everyone knows he really had no childhood, right? Because exactly. of exactly. family performance and his dad and all of that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so there was a, a very incredible shift. And especially when the cameras went on, he went from this meek kind of shy guy to the cameras going, he's like, come on, guys, let's go. And, uh, and let's do it again, again. No, let's do it again, again, again. And boy, uh, there's a reason why he's the king of pop. That guy is one of the hardest working guys in show business, without a doubt. You have so many other areas in your life that you are creative. I know that I called one time and you said, I'm in the kitchen, I'm getting ready to make dinner, but you're like a, you're like a chef guy, aren't you? Well, I'm not trained, but, right. but because being an actor, you know, I worked in restaurants in New York when I was a young buck. And then I got into the catering business between gigs because that was easier than the restaurant business. I could just plug myself into any catering company or both in New York and LA. And I ended up running Emmys and Oscar catering gigs as, as a captain and supervisor for some of the biggest companies. And being around chefs all the time, and I did a lot of like high-end dinner parties. It usually was like big fundraising parties. We did one big one at Steven Spielberg's house in the Pacific Palisades. I remember I did another big fundraiser at Chaim Saban's. Saban, the guy who famously started the Power Rangers and started his own network. You know, very, very wealthy, powerful people, and they would throw big shindigs. But I was around these incredible chefs. I was around Wolfgang Puck, and I was around uh, Joaquin Spichal from Patina in New York. I was around incredible chefs. So being around these guys, and again, I'm the fly on the wall. I'm watching them. I'm watching what they're doing. What's that? Paul Maligot, what's that? How do you make that? How do you cook the fish like that? So I'm constantly asking questions, and next thing you know, our good friend Terry Hatcher and I are dueling kitchen chefs, and we love working together and creating incredible meals. And I'm pretty much the one that cooks all the food here at home. My wife is a good cook too, but she's always busy. So it speaks to your process overall, which is you're an observer. Mm -hmm. You're always an observer and you're curious, which I think in all things creative, asking questions, being curious, dialing into the how and the why of things seems to be how you make advancements. Without it's not just what people are doing how they're doing it. So if you're serving that kind of dish and you see how it's plated, timing is critical in music, in dance, and in cooking. Like you can't have things come out 10 minutes apart and serve it on one plate. And improvisation is a big part of it. And for us as actors, and especially as a chef, you're going to mess with this thing and mess with that thing. And, and sometimes it turns out great and sometimes it falls flat on its face, but it's okay. That was a lesson. I remember I worked on Chicago, the movie. Early on in my career, my dance captain in The Mystery of Edwin Drood on Broadway was Rob Marshall, who later went on to become, uh, is a pretty big Hollywood director. And I worked with him on Chicago, the movie. And one of the greatest things was that he cast me as a reporter. And I was in a lot of scenes with Renee Zellweger, right up front, right next to Renee. And Renee Zellweger is possibly one of the most gracious, wonderful people out there, recognizes me every time she sees me, no matter where I'm at. You know, I'm catering a party somewhere. I'm the supervisor. She's like, Renee! She's amazing. But one of the great things about watching her work was that she would give you 10 completely different takes and she would try something new every time. I mean, this is in Chicago. Maybe it's different now because she has so many years under her belt. But it was amazing to watch because some of the takes fell flat. She was trying something new and it didn't work. But some of the takes were amazing. And for my money, she should have won the Oscar for that film. She, she later won it for Cold Mountain and then just recently for Judy. But she was amazing in that film. That turn as Judy, I'm telling you, it was Oof. hauntingly amazing. Every little part of the depth of the bittersweet and the alcohol and the depression. I mean, it was, it was really 
Renee is, is an astounding actress. And I got to watch her process. And I saw that she was experimenting, you know, adding salt to the sauce or adding sugar or whatever. And sometimes it fell flat and sometimes it was amazing. And I'm sure as a director, he had tons to work with. That is the difference. When we talk about the difference between theater and film, when you have that much range and you give an editor and a director performances that aren't all the same, when people start out, most actors are busy trying to get it just right, even mm. from the audition. Like I found as a director, I'll give people a counterintuitive note to see if they'll take it. Meaning in an audition, I'll say, do this really large. And they're like, it doesn't call for that. If they can't take a note, it means they're going to be hard to direct on their feet. Yeah, yeah, because they're, they're just looking for an outcome and they're not interested in the process. I'm always fascinated as a director about the resume and the bottom few lines where it says extra talent or what is that? Special skills. Special, special skills. skills. Special skills. <laughs> so what's the most outrageous thing on the special skills list of yours? Uh, outrageous. What do you think is kind of fudging the line? <laughs> That's what I always would do if people came in to put them at ease. I would always look at the resume and there's always a headshot on one side. Yeah. And then their resume on the other side. And I would look at the headshot and look at them and I go, okay, you have a head. Let's move <laughs> on. Right. Like that just gets you in the door. Right. And it relaxes them. It relaxes them. Yeah. Right. But then I would turn it over and I would just go to special skills and I'd say, oh, you speak Bolivian? And I'd say, oh, can you tell me how much you want this job in Bolivian? And they always go, well, I don't speak it fluently. Oh, like they listed 25 things. I drive a 16-wheel truck. But you're kind of taught in commercial acting, just you'll do anything. Yeah. Tell them you can ride a horse. It doesn't matter. Right. I probably did that early on in my career when I famously would pad my resume because I had no real experience. Early on, somebody told me, don't put something on special skills that you can't do because you'll be caught in a lie and it's going to cost you. And so really the craziest thing on my special skills is surfer, but I can surf. So it's not that crazy. I don't surf that much anymore, but... <laughs> But I understand. I always thought it was really funny. I didn't care if they could or couldn't, but I would always immediately hone in on the thing. It's like, hey, it turns out we're not going to run the lines. We're going to play ping pong to see if you get this job because it says here. And they're like, what? I don't know if I'm ready to play ping pong. It's like, well, you said it's a special skill. And the commercials, all, uh, it's about ping pong. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good point to make to especially young actors out there. Okay, so you, you might fib a little bit about your experience, but be careful. Don't put yourself in a situation where somebody's going to say, gotcha. And then what happens is that people have long memories about that. And that kind of stuff can haunt you in the future. So it's just best to be clean. I think being authentic and being truthful always helps. I think words like willing to sing are better. Yes, right? yes. I do not sing at all. And I got called in from Christmas movie and I don't have any talent in music. I can barely dance. That's my wheelhouse. That's my wheelhouse. You've got all that down, right? So there's this Christmas movie. I lived in New Orleans and they send me down to audition for this thing. And the guy says, hey, can you sing? I just start to go into this panic. And I think, well, I'll just sing what he wants me to sing. I'm not going to get the part. Well, I sang it to the best of my ability. And he was like, thank you. I go, what? He goes, we don't need a singer. We need a guy around the Christmas tree, like a dad who is trying hard, but can't do it. And I go, well, I can't do it. He goes, I know you got the job. <laughs> if they said sing shitty, I probably would have done it worse. Right, right, right. 
Is there anything you could share anywhere in your world that might be a creative spark or boost that folks could take into their day or week something that has allowed you to be more open to creative experiences? It's funny. I They usually room the King George and the George Washington actors together in Hamilton. And when we went to Puerto Rico, my George Washington at that time was a gentleman named Isaiah Johnson, a wonderful actor. He was recently in David Makes Man, which is an Oprah Winfrey network show, and he works all the time. He was in the revival of Color Purple on Broadway, just a wonderful singer-actor. And I remember we were talking about things that we tell young people that are outside waiting for autographs after Hamilton. And somebody asked him, what would you tell a young actor? What would be the, you know, the nugget? And he said, just say yes to everything. And I thought about that, and I said, yeah. I mean, as long as you're not putting yourself in danger by saying yes to something, yeah. Say yes to everything. Say yes to the neighborhood choir. Say yes to square dancing at the YMCA, especially if you want to go into this field or if you want to be creative. In any, even if you're a writer, say yes to any experience that is going to expand your vision. What's interesting is as young adults or as young kids, we kind of do say yes to everything, or at least I did. You know, now we live in a world that has a lot more fear and people are about like, oh, you know, be careful, don't do this, don't do that. There's a lot more fear in our culture now than there was when we were growing up. And especially now that I get older, I tend to say no to things a lot more because uh, I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to do that. I'm starting to say yes to a lot more, especially things that appeal to me. If it doesn't appeal to me, obviously I'm not going to say yes, or if it doesn't work with my schedule. But even things that I go, uh, I'm not sure. What the hell? Say yes. Yes is a really, really amazing way to create engagement for yourself mm. and to challenge yourself. You don't have to do it again if it's something that, like, I hate roller coasters. I said yes a few times, not interested in that feeling, and I'm happy to stand there and hold people's purses or whatever. You know, I'll go buy the bomb pops for people to eat after they come off the ride. But I will say new opportunities and this comes from being a writer and from being a comedian, the experience of doing it is where the observation and the storytelling comes from. Because oftentimes you can't tell the story without how did you feel doing it? What was that like? And also it's a moment of discovery. You may find that you really enjoy it or you enjoy the people that like to do it, whatever it is. We're in a spectator's culture right now. People are on their devices all the time or watching television and they're not doing as much. Luckily, my niece, uh, God, I love my niece. She's my crunchy granola niece who got an agriculture degree from Penn State. You know, she moved to Portland and she, every weekend she's she doesn't have a TV. She's reading books. She's learned how to play guitar and she's out hiking every weekend. And I'm like, yes, you're out there having experiences, not watching somebody else. Well, I tell you, the hard part about it is, of course, with the technology, mm -hmm. we're becoming even more consumers than we are being creators, right? right? Somebody does create those experiences, but then the player in the game is the one that's having the adventure and the action. And we're just pulling the strings of the puppet. 
And not that it's bad. We just need balance. I think we were a little bit out of balance. I'm forcing myself to go hiking. I'm forcing myself to do situations like this, you know, have conversations with people, play game, just more human interaction as opposed to just sitting on a couch and watching, which I do. Trust me, I'm a couch potato at heart. I've always sort of referred to life itself. Curtain goes up when you're born goes down when you die, right? So how are you going to make this an interesting life story? From chapter to chapter, we get to write our biography as we go. And I think your advice to say yes to things is what makes interesting chapters in our autobiography. Absolutely. I still have a bucket list of things that I, I want to try. The other day, I was with our mutual friend, Terry, celebrating her birthday, and she had a dozen oysters. And I don't famously don't like oysters. And when I was a teenager, and I was like, yeah, it's like swallowing a loogie. I can't. You know, it's not. I just steered away. And she goes, you have to try this. These are so fresh. They're so great. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to try it. And guess what? It was great. I liked it. I just used it as a vehicle to get Tabasco sauce down, right? Like, <laughs> like I yeah. cover it and stuff. I put it, I float it on a saltine. Like, I don't, I don't even know what's happening, but. <laughs> Those things that you've said no to for years that you sort of get stuck in your ways, shake it up, man. Take that snow globe up and do something different. Awesome. Well, I thank you, Rick, for sharing your insights, your energy. You're such a talented guy. I okay. encourage people to look you up. Rick Negron, N-E-G-R-O-N. Yeah. You can find out more about him at his website. I started my own King Instagram account. It's First Puerto Rican King. That's the number one ST Puerto Rican King, all one, no spaces. There's a lot of Hamilton stuff there. I did some cool little interviews backstage during intermission, little two-minute intermission interviews on IGTV that are fun because I featured the swings and the chorus people, the people that don't get a lot of love. Well, that's generous. And I really do think that people start paying attention. They will see those very people rising in the business because they are the hardest working folks, right? Oh, to yeah. be a swing or to be an understudy is not a slouch in any way. You have to have every part of the skill set. It's sort of like a emergency room physician's assistant, right? They have to know everything the doctor knows and then some. Rick, thank you so, so much. This has really been a pleasure getting to know you better and sharing so much cool stuff about Hamilton and about your life in general. Thanks. I wish you continued success, pal. And you too, Pat. Success with the podcast. You're really good at this, man. Congrats. Oh, thanks. You're the best, pal. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under the leadership of Amanda Rosenberg, with sound editing by the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Marcus Siniskalki, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You're hearing that right. It's dot fun. As in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage.